Thanks, Richard. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, as we come to your word, would you be at work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit? Please change them, encourage them, build them up, and help us to be those who serve the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking a question. It's a bit of an unusual question, perhaps, but it's this. Whom do you hate I'm not thinking here about a uh, list of individuals. I hope you don't have a list of individuals whom you hate. Um, I'm thinking about people groups. Whom do you hate? Or perhaps hate is, is too strong a word. Uh, so which group of people do you find yourself cold towards? Who are you least likely to smile at if a group of them were to pass you on the pavement? Uh, which group of people are you most likely to give off about uh, it, when you're in trusted company? Uh, perhaps it's young people these days, or the older generation. Maybe it's staunch Republicans, or staunch Unionists, or those in the middle ground, or those who don't care about politics. Maybe you find, you're rolling, ro find yourself rolling your eyes in disdain at environmentalists, or you find yourself tutting at gas guzzlers. Maybe it's, it's people f who follow a different brand of Christianity, or a different religion altogether, or who are in just some way different to you. Whom do you hate? Who, who do you struggle to like? Now, I guess our answer to that question depends on a number of things. It'll depend on our background and on our experiences. Uh, it may well depend on which newspaper we read. Uh, every newspaper, it seems, seems to have some group of people they seem to gun for. So it'll depend on that. It'll depend on whose company we keep and whose opinions we value. Whom do you hate? Whom, who do you struggle to like? Well, this morning, we're thinking about the advance of the gospel uh, among the Samaritans, a people group who the Jews despised. Now, historically, Samaritans, this is quite important, the Samaritans had belonged to the people of God. Uh, they were part of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel uh, before they split away from Judea and Jerusalem, setting up their own religious sites and worship. Then this northern kingdom was invaded by the superpower at the time, Assyria. And they took, Assyria took lots of um, Israelites and, and moved them into other countries and brought in other people whom they had captured and brought them into the area around Samaria, the northern kingdom. So uh, the northern kingdom, the area around Samaria, was now a mixture of people, a mixture of rebellious Jewish people who had turned their back on true worship and people of other religions and other backgrounds who had been brought in. And because of all of this, the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea in the southern kingdom hated the Samaritans. And you see that hatred um, even in the disciples 
uh, towards Samaritans. <clears throat> and their disciples' attitude, excuse me. So during Jesus' ministry in Luke 9, Jesus is passing through some Samaritan villages, uh, but the people there don't welcome him. So what do James and John suggest? Come on, Jesus, just, just, just leave them. Just, just leave them. Let's just keep going. Don't worry. No. James and John say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Jesus, shall we nuke them? Now, Jesus rebukes them for saying such a thing. But that is the sense of the, the, the hatred that Jews had for Samaritans. But now in Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel advance into Samaria. And as we explore this, I hope this will encourage us to think differently about the groups of people whom we perhaps struggle to like or feel cold towards. So three lessons for us, I think, from Acts chapter 8. And the first is this. Get behind gospel ministry among people groups you don't like. Get behind gospel ministry among people groups you don't like. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus had promised his disciples that they would be his witnesses in, in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And in chapters 2 to 7, we saw Jesus keep the first part of that promise as uh, the apostles bear witness to Jesus in Jerusalem and thousands come to faith. But we've also seen this growing opposition to the gospel, culminating in Stephen being stoned to death. And here in 8 verse 1, we read of a great persecution breaking out against the church on that day. The apostles, they stay in Jerusalem, but otherwise all of the believers scatter into Judea and Samaria. But what's the result of this great scattering? Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So imagine a Jewish family who had just recently come to faith. Maybe it was on the day of Pentecost, listening to Peter's sermon. Maybe it was in response to Peter's speech after he'd healed the lame man. In any case, they're part of the church. They've come to faith. And they are scattered. They go to Samaria. They arrive up in the, in the, in the city. The first night, they spend in the ancient equivalent of a motel. And as they check in, the receptionist asks them, where are you from? Jerusalem. You dine for holiday, is it, or for business? Or, well, no, actually, we're followers of Jesus, and we're a part of the church in Jerusalem, and it's been an amazing few months, but it's just not safe for us up there anymore. Oh, right, says the receptionist, you must be really committed to your faith. Well, I suppose we are, come to think of it, but, but with good reason. You see, Jesus died and he rose again, and off they go, gossiping the gospel wherever they go. 
The next day, dad goes off to try and find some work locally. Mum takes the kids to the local school uh, to have a look around. The teacher says, oh, you're new to the area. And they say, well, we, we were living in Jerusalem, but we're believers in Jesus, and it's just not safe for us anymore. I suppose we could have uh, stayed and given up our faith, and we would, have, we would have been safe, but we just felt we couldn't do that. Not after what Jesus has done for us. The teacher says, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus died for us, you see, so that we could be forgiven, and he rose again. And off they go, gossiping the gospel wherever they're scattered. So ordinary believers, everyday evangelists, taking the gospel out. But then there's verse 5, because Philip likewise goes to Samaria. Uh, like Stephen, Philip had been one of the seven. Uh, also, like Stephen, gifted in preaching and able to perform miracles in Jesus' name. And just listen to his ministry there, verses 6 to 8. When the crowds in Samaria heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So there's this great teamwork going on between the everyday evangelists, the ordinary believers, and Philip uh, working together to share the gospel. And just to apply this first lesson for us, I think this is calling us to get behind gospel ministry, particularly among groups of people we don't find ourselves liking. It calls us to embrace um, our role as everyday evangelists. So these uh, ordinary believers uh, scattered out of Jerusalem, they are a great example to us. You just think of their story. Uh, they were victims of persecution. Their lives had been turned upside down. And, you know, you would have understood, you would have forgiven them. Had they just come to Samaria and kept themselves to themselves, you would have understood that. Had they just spoken to themselves about the trouble that they'd experienced, you would have understood that. That would have been normal given what they'd been through. But amazingly, rather than focus on their troubles, they are able to see the opportunity for the gospel. And rather than succumbing to self-pity, they, uh, they, they have a pity for the Samaritans. They share the gospel with them. God has been at work in these believers' hearts. And again, these are, they are an example to us to embrace our call to be everyday evangelists uh, to the people we live among and work among, uh, whether we like them particularly or not. Maybe you're in a job that you don't particularly like or you live in a neighborhood that you'd rather not. Uh, you're alongside people you don't warm to and they're different to you and they wind you up perhaps with their maybe with their sinful lifestyle or maybe with their political views or and you're tempted to feel annoyed that things haven't worked out differently for you i think this encourages us encourages us to take a leaf out of these believers book and to ask for god's help to have compassion 
on those around us, maybe even especially on those we struggle to like. So this calls us to embrace um, our, our calling as everyday evangelists. I think it also calls on us to pray that God would raise up, if you like, capital E evangelists, like Philip, uh, particularly gifted in speaking the gospel to non-believers. Why not pray that some of our children would grow up to be those capital E evangelists in their generation? Because this combination of capital E evangelist with Philip and small e everyday evangelist like the believers, that is a wonderful combination, dynamite for the kingdom of God. So that's our first lesson. Get behind gospel ministry among people groups you don't particularly like. And then secondly, where such people turn to faith, this calls on us to embrace them into the church as true believers. In verses uh, 6 to 17, we see how the, how the gospel transforms Samaria. Samaria uh, was called Samaria, but in truth, it might as well have been called something like Simonia, because this was a city, this was a place that centered and was obsessed by this man, Simon. We're told he was a sorcerer, performing dark magic, tapping into evil powers to do supernatural things. And the city loved him, Luke tells us. They were obsessed. They couldn't get enough of his magic. They, they hung on every one of his words. So Luke tells us that Simon boasted that he was someone great. And the people just drank it all in. They said, this man is rightly called the great power of God. So here was a city which revolved around Simon and his dark magic and evil. But when Philip comes, preaching the gospel of Jesus and doing miracles in Jesus' name, the whole city is amazed and turns to Jesus. They're baptized, Simon included. Simon the amazing becomes Simon the amazed as he, see, as he sees God's power at work through Peter, through Philip. So it's this amazing turnaround in this whole city. But then we've got this really unusual episode in verses 14 to 17. I wonder if that made you uh, puzzle. Because even though the Samaritans believe and are baptized, they don't receive the Holy Spirit straight away. Only when uh, Peter and John come down from Jerusalem and lay their hands on the people, do they then receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on? Why is there this delay? Well, we've got to say that this is, is, this is unusual. Because the, the normal pattern in Acts and the expectation of the New Testament as a whole is that the moment that we believe in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. 
That is the, the broad teaching of the New Testament and Acts. So why the delay here? Well, it's because God is seeking to make a point about his church. You see, we've got to just remember that Samaria wasn't just another city. The gospel coming to Samaria was groundbreaking, unprecedented because of the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And therefore, there was a risk that believers in other places, uh, because of perhaps their prejudice, wouldn't accept that, Samar that the Samaritans had come to faith. No, no, not the Samaritans. True faith? No, I don't think so. That was the risk. And therefore, there was a risk that two churches might have formed. A Jewish church uh, made up of Jewish Christians and then a Samaritan church made up of Samaritan Christians. That was the risk. But God's not willing to settle for two churches. His plan is for one true united church made up of believers from everywhere and all backgrounds. So what does God do to ensure that his plan for one church is, is fulfilled? He delays giving his Holy Spirit to these Samaritan believers until Peter and John, these credible apostles, come down from Jerusalem and see it with their own eyes. So that they, these credible witnesses, these credible apostles, can tell other believers, no, 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 these Samaritans are genuine believers. They are the real deal. We saw them receive the Holy Spirit with our own eyes. We were the ones through whom the Spirit came. These, these believers are the real deal, and you should accept them into the church as full-blown members of Christ's body. That is why God delays giving the Holy Spirit here. It's for the sake of his, the unity of his church, one church. And I think there's a lesson here for us too, where those whom we perhaps don't find ourselves naturally warming to, when they turn to faith, we must embrace them into the church as true believers. For us today, when someone unlikely claims to belong to Jesus and displays the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, we must put aside prejudice, put aside skepticism, and embrace them into the church family, not insisting that they share the same background as us, not insisting that we all speak the same language or worship in exactly the same way, but uniting together around the same gospel. This is a call for gospel unity, these verses, especially with believers uh, with backgrounds that we're not familiar with or maybe a bit scared of. We are to embrace Samaritan believers, if you like. And if you feel yourself to be a bit like these Samaritan believers, that is, if you feel perhaps that you're from a different background to, to most people here, perhaps, or your political views are different, or your culture is just different, you feel like a Samaritan believer in that sense, then likewise, you need to know 
if you've turned and trusted in Christ, if you've received the Holy Spirit and He's at work in your life, then you belong. You are part of God's worldwide church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the second uh, lesson for us, to embrace those who turn to faith regardless of their background. Thirdly and finally, this calls us to examine our own hearts for the desire for power and fame. Uh, we're thinking here about Simon and Simon's heart. So you think about his story. He's a major player in, uh, in this chapter. He had been the local hero in Samaria. Everything had revolved around him. Everyone listened to him, worshipped him, were amazed by him. And then Philip comes, preaches Christ, and all of that just falls away as Jesus becomes the center of attention. And initially, it seems Simon is quite glad about that. At least he believes and is baptized. But soon it becomes clear that he wants his power and fame back again. Without the people praising him, he just feels empty. His ego hurts. He can't bear for Jesus to get all of the glory and not him. He is, if you like, I think, the, op the polar opposite of John the Baptist. So you remember John the Baptist? What does he say about Jesus? He must increase, I must decrease. He says to his, to, to his disciples, go with Jesus, don't stay with me. Simon says, all this glory, going to Jesus, well, what about me? Seeing the apostles lay their hands on people and then receive the Holy Spirit, he has an idea. He goes to his safe takes out a sack of money and goes and speaks to the apostles to try and buy this ability to give the Holy Spirit. And Peter, Peter's answer is very, very sharp. Verse 20 to 23, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And I think we have here in Simon Again, a, a, a lesson for us, a warning for us to examine our hearts to make sure that we root out any desire that we might have for fame or power, especially within the church. What might that look like? Well, in truth, it could look like any number of things because a heart that is set on power and prestige can be very, very creative in its attempts to get those things. It might look like wanting a position within the church or in a ministry, um, not in order to serve, but for the prestige, uh, hoping in the depth of your heart to become someone important 
to become a great leader or a gospel pioneer or to be known as a kind of prophet of this generation. And in places where the the gospel is growing, like in Samaria, I think that's probably more of a temptation. I was reading this week about the church in Nigeria, and you'll know about it as well, where church leaders and their children are at heightened risk of being abducted and killed because of the gospel. My guess is that in Nigeria, you don't have too many people clamoring for position within the church out of a desire for fame or power. But in a more peaceful context, and in a place where the gospel is growing and flourishing and Jesus is becoming popular, that seems to be where the temptation will be. Those of us who are in word ministry, those who would desire to serve the church in this way, and whatever that may look like, we've got to examine our motives. What is driving us? Is it prestige? Is it power? Or is it the desire to glorify Jesus? Peter's response shows us that the desire for prestige, the desire for power, that is an ugly, ugly desire and incompatible with a ministry that glorifies Jesus. So what have we said? Well, we've heard here the encouragement to get behind gospel ministry among people, groups that we don't naturally like. We've heard the encouragement where such people turn to faith to embrace them into the church family as full-blown members of Christ's body. And we've heard the warning and the encouragement to explore and examine our own hearts for this desire for power and prestige and fame that we may not become like Simon. Let's pray and ask God for help uh, to grow in these areas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are unlovely naturally to you, that we have rebelled against you, and yet you have shown us love and have sent us Jesus and shared the gospel with us so that we we might know all the gospel blessings that we enjoy. And we pray too that we would be those who have compassion on those we don't naturally warm to, and that where such folk turn to faith, we might heartily embrace them into your family. Guard us likewise against the danger and the desire for fame and for power like Stephen. Help us, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.